Hi, just a quick content warning about today's episode. While we do talk about lean and continuous improvement, there is also at different points in the episode some discussion about a death by suicide and mental health issues. So if that's not for you, um, I would understand if you want to bypass this episode. Uh, If you are in a a position or someone you know um, needs help, help is available when it comes to mental health. In the United States, you can call toll-free from any phone, 988. If you're in the UK, you can call 116-123. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 482 of the podcast. It is August 9th, 2023. You'll learn more about her in a minute. Our guest today is Gemma Jones. If you'd like to learn more about her business and find links about this episode, look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 482. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Lean Blog Interviews. I'm Mark Raven. We are joined today by Gemma Jones. She is an improvement coach, a trainer, and a visual facilitator based in the UK and working globally. Gemma started her career in engineering and quickly found a passion for improvement, like I think most of us listening to the podcast and including me as host. That passion is something we're going to be able to talk about today. Uh, Gemma spent 20 years in manufacturing across numerous industries, and then in 2018, uh, she left to build her own business. So her mission is to help organizations and individuals be the best they can be by helping people see, helping people think, and helping people change. I love that. So Gemma, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, Mark. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's um, very nice to have you here. And, um, you know, if uh, had a couple opportunities to to run across you on Zoom. We we run in in some uh, similar uh, circles around continuous improvement these last couple of years. So it's it's great to finally have you here on the podcast. And you know, as, uh, we normally do. I guess the closest thing I have the standard work is asking people their continuous improvement origin story. So Gemma, let me let me throw that question to you. Cool. Um. Yeah, this is really nice to think about actually to look back. So my I started in mechanical engineering. I did a mechanical engineering degree. As part of that degree, I did a year in industry. And so I learned about some of the, you know, some of the continuous improvement um, things in my degree in mechanical engineering. We learned about Deming and about CI and, you know, lots of kind of the background. And it was quite theoretical. And I was interested in all of that, but I didn't really understand, didn't really understand it. And then I went to work in industry for a year um, in my third year. And I really realized how actually we can use these things. And when I went to, you know, started working with people and started understanding that actually it's not about the tools, it's about the people and the relationships and the trust and the respect. Um, so I, I really loved that part of it. I, I was really passionate about it. I remember going back for my final two years of university and having a completely different mindset about all the things I was learning um, and absolutely loved it. And then when I graduated and went to work, you know, properly got into manufacturing. Um, it I took it forward from there. And I I guess I was really lucky early on in my career. Um, I was working for a company based in South Wales near Cardiff. Um, and we were really lucky to be working with some people from Cardiff Business School. Um, so um, 
a guy called, he's Professor Nick Rich. I was very lucky he was my mentor. Um, he wrote one of the chapters of the book, Lean Thinking, um, or was instrumental in one of the chapters. And I mean, he was my mentor for probably two years for a day a week. And I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time. I didn't write yeah. down enough of what he said. Mm-hmm. Didn't realize quite what uh, an amazing opportunity that was. But he really instilled in me the notion of improvement is all about people and about relationships and really you need to spend the maximum amount of time that you can out on the floor talking to people um, and helping them to think through and helping them to achieve it's not about you doing things it's not about you solving the problems it's about you helping people to solve their problems and so I was very lucky to have that to be instilled in me at a very young age Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's I've brought that forward into my career ever since. Yeah, there's some great foundations there to kind of go back and explore a little more about um, a couple of the things you brought up. You know, not everybody gets that Deming foundation. I was fortunate to have some of that through uh, my father who worked at General Motors and got to go to a a Deming four-day seminar. It wasn't really being taught formally in my undergraduate industrial engineering, but having some exposure and the ability to go read some of Deming's work was, um, I, I think, uh, a, a really strong foundation. I, I'd be curious to hear more reflections from you um, on on that, that Deming foundation. I think it really underpins so much. And like you say, lots of people don't necessarily read about that or learn about that. And I don't think I understood how important it was then. Um, and I, I've got my notes from my from my degree, and you know, I look back on it now, and I can see so much more in what I wrote and what I learned about than what I understood at the time. Um, but no, I think it's a really good basis. I think you know, the more you can understand that, the more the rest of it makes sense. Um, the linkages and the relationships and the people and the principles. Yeah, I think it makes a massive difference. It's so much more depth to the learning. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Toyota people talk about how influential Dr. Deming was. Like to me, this is not a history lesson. It, it's part of understanding at yeah. least one of the major influences uh, on 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 Toyota. And you 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 talked also about respect for people. You know, I think that was a, a strong thread in what Dr. Deming, you know, taught about. Um, yeah. In many ways, showing respect for, you know, the frontline workers are often put in a bad system. Part of respect would be not blaming, you know, good yeah. people in a bad system. And and part of respect is, um, you know, this is to me more direct Toyota type language of creating a system where people can be successful. I think that's yeah. very deep and or very, very clear in, in Deming's writing and work. Absolutely. But to have, as you mentioned, great coaches—that's something not everybody um, is, is is fortunate to have, depending on the, their workplace in environment. Can can you think of any times where that that coaching really hit home about it being all about people and, and working with and working through others? Um, well, I think back to my early days. Um, in my career, whilst in my degree and also after I graduated. Um, Now, I'd done a mechanical engineering degree, but I was actually going to go and do art. I was going to go to art college. Um, But my physics teacher told me I must not go to art college and I must go to engineering school. (laughs) But part of the reason that I hesitated was I don't have a big background. You know, I'd never taken a car apart with my 
dad like a lot of my counterparts in the engineering degree had I'd never taken a lawnmower apart I didn't really understand how gearing systems worked I didn't really understand how you know cars and engines and things worked so there was a lot of practical knowledge that I didn't have um, when I went into engineering and I really felt that and then when I went out to work and I was looking at machinery and manufacturing equipment I, I was very conscious that I didn't really know how it worked so I had a real imposter syndrome problem of I don't know how to do this I don't know how I'm supposed to help these people understand the problems or solve the problems and what I realized quickly was actually I didn't need to know those things but it was almost me learning how to cope with what I saw as my inadequacy or my my shortcomings that I developed this this you know the I didn't develop it obviously it's a known thing but asking questions rather than giving people answers I realized I could get by by doing that and I was really lucky I think that that happened because I think that made me coach people from early on without no and I didn't know I was doing that and I hadn't been taught how to do that and it was probably if I look back now it was probably a bit rusty but it was that notion of coaching them and helping them side by side, helping them figure it out rather than telling them what to do. And I think that's that's a strength now. I used to mm-hmm. think that was me overcoming yeah. a weakness. Hmm. I, I I love the way you say that. You're 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 right. When when you can't tell people what to do, I mean that that can be a blessing because when you think of so many other workplaces where people are promoted up through the ranks whether it's in manufacturing or healthcare, and they fall into that trap of knowing yes. too much about how the work is done and exactly staying. So, I mean, do, do you find yourself in a situation now where kind of drifting or we're, we're building upon your origin story? Do you find yourself in situations now where you're having to try to help leaders and coach them through recognizing that maybe they have this pattern of more telling, less asking? Yeah, getting helping people to see when they're jumping to give advice or to tell rather than asking, um, I think is is actually quite a key part of what I do now when I'm coaching with leaders, and not just with leaders, you know, as in top of the company or senior company. You know, if people are leading projects or if they're CI practitioners and they're leading a team or a you know um, a particular activity. Um, it's the same thing. And sort of being able to notice when you jump to do that, I think, is a skill in itself. You know, asking questions and then shutting up, you know, is is a skill in itself. And that is something that um, I'm often helping people to observe that and notice that because a lot of us, you know, I don't think we necessarily realize we're doing it. Um, so, yeah, having someone to help you see that can really help, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big part of uh, what a coach can do, whether it is a music coach or uh, I imagine, uh, well, uh, a golf coach or an art coach. Um, yeah. yeah. To, 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 to help you notice, or at least maybe, you know, maybe people then develop the ability once it's pointed out to them, that yeah. ability to be more self-observant perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think, yeah, we can become more, we can realize that we, we can not see something's happening, but once we've realize when we do it we know the triggers we know what it feels like we know some of the language to look out for then we can become much more aware yeah now you know you talked about not taking things apart when you were a kid I didn't do that either <laughs> and so um I, I I lacked some of that maybe a practical um experience but you you know when 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 you get into an industrial setting 
you, like you said, as, as you reflected on, you learn what you have to know. Like, you know, yeah. I started at General Motors and they sent us to a class where we spent a day or two um, putting together an engine by hand. Like, okay, that was interesting. I don't know how much that really helped me do my job. Like maybe it kind of grounded me in, okay, this is the product and this is what it does. That's fine. But it wasn't really, we, you know, we, most of us have driven a car, so it wasn't really that theoretical of what the engine what the engine does. But like you said, relying on um, coaching, questions, helping people through that. Um, yeah, it's great things to learn. But then when you think about coaching and asking questions, that makes me think of, you know, some of your, your more recent work around the Toyota Kata approach. And um, you, yeah. you're a co-founder of a group with uh, with Tracy Defoe, who was here on uh, episode 467. Tell us a little bit about that that group. I'll let you say what it is and yeah so the group we called the Kata Girl Geeks and we're a group for women across the world wanting to learn more about scientific thinking and the practice of Kata and um, we started back in 2020 I'd done some training in Kata and um, I'd had the books on my shelf for five six years thought I understood it thought it was you know yeah I've seen this before and um, long you know long history of, in lean I would talk about lean being my religion and um, you know and this was my thing. And um, so I went and did some training to, to learn more about Toyota Kata, um, finished that training, then tried to use it with clients and realized very quickly, you know, how hard it was. Looks really simple on the outside. Actually, it's quite hard to practice. Um, so I actually, I was so, I felt like I was on the verge of, of almost putting it to one side because I'd realized how hard it was. But I reached out to Tracy, who I knew was a big advocate for Kata and asked if she would help me. She offered to coach me. She coached me very generously. She'd never met me before. She, you know, she coached me for six weeks. Um, and then when we finished that coaching, we decided we wanted to, you know, how do I continue? How do we continue? Um, let's keep meeting once a week. And hey, should we invite some other women? We were both involved with the Women in Lean group at the mm -hmm. time. I know you're a big advocate for Women in Lean. So we reached out to members of there, said, is anyone else interested in learning about Kata and scientific thinking? And a few people joined us and I just thought that would be us and we would, you know, just just potter along for, a, you know, a few months. Um, but actually, the group has grown and grown. And now we've got over 100 women who come together um, every workday. Actually, we have learning groups who come together every workday, but we have three um, meetings every week as a whole. Um, yeah. And we've we've got over 100 women across the world. It's incredible. I mean, it amazes me every week. Um, I'm incredibly proud of the group. We've, we talk about how many coaches we've grown, and we've now grown over 20 coaches. So there's over 20 women on the planet who previously had no coaching experience, who are now fully competent, confident coaches, making a difference in the world. And that, that means some, that means a huge amount to me. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And, you know, how, how would you describe or articulate the benefit of having groups kind of, you know, created by, for, and of women? So I think, you know, it, we, we came out of Women in Lean, which, which evolved, um, you know, because of Karen, Karen Ross being at conferences and looking up at the stage and not seeing any women. Um, and, we've we've kept to that in the category you know we have had a few moments where we've been criticized openly and privately for only being open to women 
And we've had a lot of conversations about whether we should open the group and whether we should make it open to anyone. But the reason we've kept it that way is, well, there's two reasons, I guess, two big reasons. One is we are, you know, women supporting women, which is a really beautiful thing. But more importantly is, yeah, when you go to conferences, lean conferences, cata conferences, and you look at the stage and you look at the audience, it's the there's a majority of men there, a big majority of men there. There aren't that many women. There aren't that many women on the stage. There aren't that many women talking about lean and kata in a public place. And we want to build that and we want to strengthen that. Um, and we've seen the the benefits and the the feeling of the group. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can describe it well enough, but it, we really are women supporting women. It's incredibly close, incredibly respectful. You know, people laugh, cry, you know, they're in their pajamas, they've got their kids there in the background, their dogs in the background, you know, they're out in the garden with their children. It's a really open, wonderful, supportive group. Um, yeah, it's a it's a really beautiful thing, a really beautiful thing. So we're, it's very precious to us and we want to keep it. We want to keep it safe. Yeah. Well, and that's great. And 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 to be clear, and I, I don't think you thought I was criticizing. That was not me no, not at all. criticizing not at all. that. But to, to hear you articulate how and why that's so important, because you you're you're right, there are still uh inclusion gaps. Yes. Along lines of uh, of gender and race. It, it's not only still uh majority men on stage, it's it's frankly still, you know, majority white men on stage. Yes. And yes. we have to break that cycle where people don't feel where I've heard people say that they don't feel confident or comfortable when they don't see people like them on stage. Exactly. They, they, it's harder to aspire um, to that. And um, you know, the, the, the diverse talent of people who can do a great talk at conferences, it's, it's out there. You have, yeah. you have to look, I like, to me, this isn't giving a spot to somebody just because they're a woman it's going and finding women and people of color and, you know, yeah. people sometimes outside of, um, I'll say it, you know, sometimes the organizations that put on conferences, they have their circle, right? People who've been involved for a long time. And sometimes yeah. you get to sort of help chip into that. Yeah. I'm not saying they mean any any harm, but it's just natural. Like they they have their circle and they're people they're comfortable with. You know, it's it's I I think helpful to to try to help others break into that. Yeah. Yeah. We want to raise the voices of women in lean and in kata in in the respects of our group. Um, and we've seen great benefits from that. And we've seen, you know, we see what a lovely community, supportive community we have. So, yeah, it's working. It's working yeah. for us. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. Um, so, Gemma, one thing we were, I think this might be, you know, kind of the bulk of the episode here. Now that we've gotten to know you and some of your background a little bit. I, I know you're very interested in, in looking at you know, overlap um, of not just continuous improvement, but mental health. Um, you recently did a keynote talk. Um, on this. So I, I really just kind of in a very open-ended way, you know, turn it over to you to, to share some of your thoughts and experiences um, about, again, you know, mental health and continuous improvement. Okay, cool. Yeah, just to give you a bit of context into, into how this came about. Um, five years ago, I was working for a manufacturing organization and I was the CI manager. Um, I'd had 20 odd years of experience working in CI and lean um, and operations. And this was, you know, incredibly important to me. Um, so I was working for a company. And one day, very sadly, I came into work to find out that one of my colleagues had died by suicide. 
Mm. Now, this was an enormous shock, um, you know, uh, incredible, you know, didn't see this coming. You know, I knew I was working very closely with him. Um, I knew he was stressed. I, I would have said there was 20 other people more stressed than him and um, had no idea that he was struggling. Um, so this was an enormous shock. And then, you know, immediately we had to start to figure out how to, you know, look after people, how to cope with this, how to deal with this um, as a as an organisation. And one of the things I realised very quickly was I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to behave. And so I, you know, quickly started doing research and trying to understand it a bit more. Um, the first thing I learned was the statistics around suicide. And it's... Mm-hmm terrifying i mean absolutely terrifying there's 800,000 people a year die by suicide uh, that's more than homicide um and and, and you know, that's 800,000 people i'm sorry to interrupt um geographically the whole world yeah the whole world okay the whole world and that's an understatement of the number because we know it's not reported in some countries and we know it's so it's at least 800,000 people a year across the world that's one person every 40 seconds now that's it's terrifying. Um, I also learned that certainly in the UK, if you're a man under 50, your most likely cause of death is suicide. And at the time I had, and I still have two teenage boys and a husband. So I remember the day I learned that statistic and I came home and I looked at them and thought, all this time I've been worried about you having an accident at school or crossing the road or in the swimming pool. That's what I worry about as a parent. But actually, what I really need to be worrying about is what you're thinking and how you're feeling. Um, so that was it was a really big shock. Um, it led to me leaving and setting up my own business. Um, and one of the first things I did was train in mental health first aid. Um, I, I felt very strongly that I wanted to be able to know how to respond, what to do, how to help people. Um, and One of the things I learned on that training, and I remember this light bulb moment in my head when I learned this, was that suicidal thoughts are almost always based on unclear thinking. Now, to me, you know, sitting there thinking as a CI professional, that isn't that's what we do as CI people. We help people think more clearly, or certainly that's the way, you know, I practice CI. So we've got we've got this army of people around the world of of very highly skilled, highly trained CI people. What if we could, you know, help them or encourage them to tune into people to help them with their thinking about themselves, not just about their processes and their systems. What if we could use some of those CI tools and those CI methods to help people? And when I was on the mental health first aid training, I looked around the room and most of the people in the room were from HR. Now, I've got nothing against people from HR, but I know if I was struggling, HR wouldn't be the department that I would run towards. Um, you know, they hold a lot of power in your in the organization. And I I'm just not sure that they're the necessarily the best people to be doing that training. Whereas as a CI person, you know, you very often have a very wide reach across an organization and you're very often in touch with people at all different levels. You know, we very often have strong relationships with people at all different levels and departments of the company so if those people you know could have some of these skills and tools and and abilities to look out for symptoms to know how to signpost people to help you know to know the questions to ask to get people to talk 
um, you know, then I, th- I really think there could be a big benefit. So that's that's basically my mission now. I see it as my mission is to encourage and enable CI people to tune in to help people think um, to overcome obstacles and embrace change. That's that's kind of my reason for working and being now. Wow. Wow. Um, well, for, for one, thank you for for being willing you know, to share that story. I'm sure it's um, not easy to bring up, maybe easier to bring up in the spirit of helping um, yeah. raise awareness and, and helping others. Um, I, I, when, when, when you talk about what you didn't recognize um, with, with your colleague, I mean, I, it, it makes me think, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't want to be in a position of blaming you or anybody for what they did or didn't do. I saw maybe it was Adam Grant, um, somebody, you know, there's a, a post on LinkedIn, this reminder of this idea that um, you know, even people we work with a lot, like we we generally really only know a very small percentage of what's going on in their life or in their head or, you know, the totality of stressors or, or circumstances or, or, or other factors. Um, but, but to that point, I, w- I was, I was going to ask you like um, in terms of looking for signs of like when it might be appropriate to try to open a conversation with somebody. And I can, I imagine that that could be difficult, but are there ways of, of sort of, if you will, creating some standard work for a good way of broaching the subject? Yeah. With somebody. Yeah, I mean, and there's, you know, the symptoms are fairly, and I'm not a mental health first aider training, so I'm not, I don't want to replace the need for that. There is, there's some great training available and there's some free training that I can talk about at the end um, and share some links. But in terms of noticing, if you notice someone's behavior is off, you know, if you're noticing they don't see themselves, if they're using words or, um, you know, their, their body language, or if you're noticing something different in people, The way I like to approach it or the way I like to encourage people to approach it is to say exactly that. I notice you're not yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, and I might not be the right person, but um, can I get someone who you can talk to? Because again, it depends on your relationship with that person. If they work for you, they might not want to open their heart to you. Um, If you're a manager and they work for another another manager, they might not want to be open with you. So it's I think it's important to acknowledge that you've noticed that it seems like there's something wrong and then either offer to talk or offer to find someone who they can talk to that they feel safe with. Um, the other thing I'd say there is even if the answer is no, I'm fine, you know, go in again. You know, are you, you know, are you sure? Because you really don't seem yourself or or, you know, keep a very close eye and then come in the next day or later on that day. Because very often people will tell you I'm fine because they think if I keep saying I'm fine, then that means I'm fine. Or actually, I don't really want to talk about it right now. But quite often they'll realize a little bit later, actually, I do need to talk about it. And just that someone's noticed my behavior or noticed the way I am, that shows they care and they might have a realization that actually they might be able to help. So. I think saying that you've noticed the behavior and then going in again and asking and checking yeah. is a good it, idea. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine people might be surprised by the question. They might not quite know how to respond other than a reflexive, 
I'm yeah. fine. It's sort of like the 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 routines of hey, good morning, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. How are you? Great. Well, I mean, that may or may not be an accurate, yeah, you know, answer. But um, you know, given time and space, you know, we're we're maybe I imagine maybe somebody gets past that surprise and kind of thinks about it, and then you may find times where well they'll come and 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 follow up and say, so, well, Gemma, you know, you you yeah. you asked yesterday and. I gave it some thought and they they may open up or you following up with them might um, lead to that. I mean, at, at the least, it seems like there's nothing wrong in saying or expressing I I, I care. And we can say yeah. this in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I care about you. I'm concerned about you. Even language like that would probably yeah. be okay. Yeah, I think so. And the other thing I think we can really do, especially as as leaders and as CI practitioners, is we can normalize the act of talking about feelings and emotions in the workplace. Um, Because, you know, one of the other big things I learned is that uh, for a lot of people, part of the answer is is communication, is being able to put into words that you don't feel okay, and being comfortable to do that in a work setting. Um, a lot of people, you know, have been taught. I know I have often kept emotions inside of me for fear of being unprofessional or, you know, kind of exposing myself. And I think part of the issue here is getting people to be comfortable to talk. So I do a lot of that in the work I do, um, even just in meetings. You know, how did that make you feel? Just asking that question and encouraging people to actually talk about feelings and emotion, getting people used to talking about that. Um Another example I'll give is when I when I do process mapping with people or if, if I'm training people in process mapping or actually doing an exercise for every little box on the process map or every sticky note on the wall, I'll ask people to add an emoji about how they feel at that point of that process. And so by getting them to talk about feelings relating to the process, not only does it deepen the, the knowledge and the understanding of the process, you know, why do you feel angry there? Why do you feel tired there? Why do you feel excited at this point? You get a much deeper understanding of the process. People get a much deeper understanding of each other. But also, more importantly, you're normalizing to talk about emotions in a safe environment like that, in a meeting room, talking with your team about a process. And my theory is if we can get people more comfortable to talk about it there, maybe they'll be more comfortable, you know, if they're in a point of crisis or they're in a, you know, a point of really needing help. So I think normalizing talking about emotions and leaders and managers can do that, you know, every minute of every working day. Yeah. yeah. Just getting sharing your own emotions, telling people how you feel, mm-hmm. you know, make it part of the normal language. Yeah. Yeah. I that's 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 great. And you know, I I can think personally, sort of, you know, going on a journey of trying to think through and understand or embrace. You know, as, as an engineer, you know, there's there's this bias toward thinking, rational, quantitative, and and people might say things like, um, "Who who? This isn't personal. This isn't emotional. This is just business." Like I don't subscribe to that because a business is people. Yeah. And if we want to talk about, you know. Um, if you know Toyota phrases like respect for people and respect f- for humanity, um, we have to embrace 
you know, I, our, our human nature and we are emotional beings. And um, I think I've, I first, there's one other thought that comes to mind. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts around this. Um, you know, I saw the beginning of my career, and this goes back to Deming and lean ideas of not wanting people to check their brain at the door. How, how bad that is. It makes me think of we shouldn't be asking people to check their heart at the door either. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think having respect for people is about the whole person. Yeah. Not just neck upwards, not just, you know, not just brain, but also like you say, yeah. And I think if we can engage that part of people, you know, we get so much more because at the end of the day, we all have emotions, whether we like it or not, we can pretend we don't. And we can pretend that that's, that's messy and we don't want to talk about it. And it's difficult at the end of the day, we all have emotions. We all know how it feels to have to go and do a day's work when something traumatic has happened or something terrible has happened, or you've had an argument with your spouse or your child, or you've lost your dog or your cat or a you know a grandparent. We know how that feels to try, go and try and do the best work we can. And we know how hard that is. And there are people that are going through that every single day. If you're in the US, UK or Canada, you know, one in five people, that's 20% of people, one in five people are struggling with a mental health issue right now. So if you work in a company, for every 100 people you've got in your company, 20 of them are struggling right now. And we can pretend that's not happening, or we can try and help them and do something about it. Yeah. And I bet those numbers are pretty broadly similar across different yeah. Layers of society of people and say, well, we're we're a professional services firm. Everyone's so well educated and lives a pretty posh life, if you will. There's still going to be mental health. Issues. Well, and even if it's slightly less in that, I mean, I don't know the in, intricate details of the numbers, but, you know, even if it was three quarters of that, even if it's only 15 people, you know, it, these are these are human beings who are. are are working for us or for those organizations and we know that they're struggling and I think there's a huge amount we can do to support them without just thinking well it's nothing to do with us you know that's their personal life no it's you know no it's not there's there's a there's a, a massive amount we can do yeah there's a lot that we can do and I think we could say there's a lot that that we should do if we can be comfortable um yes. with it you know I think what I know Personally, one thing that that's really helped me a lot has been, you know, time working in healthcare, where uh, maybe you know it's the it's the nature of caring professions, the reality of um, great um, life changing successes and traumatically sad events and sickness and recovery and dying. That there, there, you know, there, there. I think tends to be generally a little bit more, more embracing of um, the impact that can have on our emotions, or the impact of our emotions on some of that work. Uh, I'm, I'm generalizing, you know, uh, so it's not always um, going to be true. But I, I've, I've heard more, definitely, you know, more, more talk of feelings and emotions in, in healthcare than. I mean, this is going back right. 25 years ago than I would really ever remember at, say, a General Motors factory. <laughs> I can't imagine the reaction if I had tried. And I, I love what, what you were sharing about, um, you know, 
tell me how you feel about like I I don't think that would have gone well. <laughs> no, and this you know I'm I still work in environments now where you know you can you can sort of hear the gasp or you know you can hear that you know there's people resistance. Um, but I stick at it and I still keep asking the question until people get so, you know, bored of me asking. Um, I yeah. get the leaders to demonstrate this is what I'm looking, you know, this is what we're looking for. This is the language we're looking for. And, you know, humor me um, and just and just keep going. Because because, like I say, we all have feelings. Let's just learn how to talk about them in a safe way um, and know that we're safe to do that. And, you know, again, there's a there's a big onus there on the leadership to be receptive to that. Um, and to to receive that in the right way and deal with that in the right way and encourage it in the right way. Um, so there's a lot. It's not just as simple as getting people to talk about how they feel. We also have to make sure that we're we're working with that. I mean, how often do you end up prompting somebody to the point where the, the first emotion they share is either, let's say, I, I feel skeptical about talking about our <laughs> emotion or I Gemma I feel frustrated that you can I mean that's a start it's, a it's not start. really what you're going for but it's a start right yeah one of the things I do is I um I teach people how to draw emo emojis because we've all got emojis now in our phones yeah we all use them I think it's something like 85 percent of people between over the age of or no below the age of 80 or something use emojis every single day in their communication so we're used to using emojis in personal communication let's get used to using them in a work setting so I teach people how to draw very simplified emojis with just a few lines you know um and I give them a big poster um showing you know here's nine different emojis that kind of cover a sp spectrum of emotions pick one so even if they can't put it into words and they're not really sure you know, pick one of these and tell me which one is closest. And sometimes that can just help. Um, so they're not having to come up with the words. They can they can kind of look at the one that feels most appropriate. Mm -hmm. So again, it's about giving them the language. Yeah. And and so when it comes to language, um, you know, for one, I, I want to thank you. We 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 did have a, a previous conversation, you know, before we we were recording. Um, the episode here today, I, I, you were the first person that I had heard this phrase, mental health first aid from. Yeah. You know, I want to, I want to thank you for that. And we can kind of come back to, I know, you know, people I'm sure can go and search, but we'll come back and get some of your tips as you had said, you, you would share about where to go get training on this. But I think, you know, there's also language to explore when a couple of minutes ago, you talked about people feeling safe. And that's you know re really important um, when it comes to language around psychological safety in a workplace. Um, feeling safe to speak up about a problem, feeling safe yeah. to admit a mistake, feeling safe to have a kaizen idea, and it also includes feeling safe um, to express emotions. And and, th and there are times when I've um, done talks or webinars or even like within a team, you can survey people. And it's interesting to have people rank to them personally of some of these different acts, which are the most vulnerable to you personally, meaning which which feel the most risky or dangerous. Yeah. And usually um, within giving people a list of 10 or 15 things to rank, generally speaking, um, admitting a mistake to a lot of people feels very dangerous. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's an opportunity for leaders to help them feel safe. We can't just tell them, be brave. Yeah. You have to admit mistakes. They don't have to. But the the other thing that ranks very high in that list is expressing emotions. Yeah. Where people feel like that is risky to them professionally to get labeled as being too emotional or being um, chastised for being upset about something, which maybe isn't good root cause problem solving (laughs) if we don't think about, well, why, why was this upsetting to you? Because we're, we're, we're humans. We get upset sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I think as leaders, they have an, people have an opportunity to, to, to demonstrate and show how that can work to, you know, not only receive, if people do talk about emotions, you know, receive that in a, in a supportive, neutral, non-judgmental way, but also to show the same, you know, to self-disclose, to share some of your own emotions, to, to make it more normal, to make it more part of the, part of the culture um, and to make people feel more safe to do so. Um, Because you're right, there can be repercussions. I can think of times when I have shared my emotions when I was younger and it was not support you know I, I was not supported and it didn't go well and I was told off for being too emotional you know I you know I was yeah so I can think of times when that hasn't worked for me because the environment was not right. supportive and that's happened to me not just when I was younger but even sometimes in more recent years um and 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 that can be doubly upsetting then i mean we've i mean at some point hopefully we we all learn in life um and this i think applies to personal relationships you can't tell somebody how to feel don't no. try to tell someone they should be or shouldn't be feeling a certain way no and we can't tell people how they are feeling and you know absolutely um yeah, if, if gosh, if someone trusts you enough to share with you how they're feeling, we need to learn how to respect that, receive that, um, and support that, and then figure out what we need to do to to help them going forwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there an opportunity to apply? I mean, I, I brought up this phrase "root cause" um, to to ask why questions or, or use other problem solving framework it's not saying that the emotion is the problem but trying to yeah. drill down what 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 have you been able to experiment with or or find helpful yeah so what i have found helpful actually um and this is a bit controversial in the lean world but is to try and avoid the question why um asking someone why can can lead them to feel defensive because it's almost being judgmental and critical or it can be received as being judgmental and critical. Um, And also, I think if you're asking the question why, it can lead to you um, giving solutions or being direct, you know, why don't you try this? Why haven't you done (laughs) this? But those aren't really questions. (laughs) Those aren't really questions. Those are instructions. So consciously, I try to stay away from the word why. Um, but instead asking more open questions like, you know, what happens when or what leads you to feel like this or, you know, what it's kind of what questions and how questions and when questions rather than why. And I think that's only it's a it's a sounds like a really small shift, but it can make a massive difference in how someone hears that question. 
if they're feeling vulnerable and emotional, the last thing they want is to feel judged. Um, yes, they might need some help getting to root cause. And we can ask deepening questions to try and get to root cause. You know, what is it that's making you feel frustrated? You know, what about that is making you feel angry, whatever? You know, we can ask questions to try and peel back some of the layers, but also we have to make sure we're respectful when we do that. Someone's feeling frustrated and they can't articulate why. That's okay. They're still feeling frustrated. And that doesn't mean that their feelings are not valid just because right now they can't articulate it. When we're super stressed and emotional, you know, our powers of reasoning are diminished because we're in a probably in a fight or flight situation and we're not necessarily able to think that clearly. Um, and as a as a manager, as a leader, as a CI person, as a mentor, as a coach, we've got to understand that. Um, just because someone can't explain it doesn't mean it's not real, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But we can try and help them to figure it out. Um, you know, I think some of the techniques that we use as CI people, the mapping, the drawing, the right, let's draw a picture of how this is working. Some of that can really help bring someone's stress level down and, mm-hmm. and help them to articulate things. Yeah. And I mean, it just makes me think of core Kaizen principles around sometimes you take baby steps or we could frame this in terms of kata. We, we can see, you know, our challenge and what are some next steps that we're going to take to try to incrementally yeah. move us along. I think the same thing is true as psychological safety. You don't go from a complete extreme lack of psychological safety to a perfectly safe environment um like flipping a switch it's a it's it's a journey it's a journey it, it yeah it takes totally. progressive steps and learning and adjustment along absolutely and if i think about you know referencing this to kata that's the majority of my work now it's kind of my passion i think kata is the best way to learn how to think um the first, well, the, we set a challenge in Kata, but then the next step, the second step before we start moving forwards is to grasp our current condition. And I think that's where there's some real power in understanding a situation or an activity, you know, a, something that's happening that's leading someone to not feeling good. Let's dig into it and really understand the current condition. What is going on? What is happening? Who is involved? Who's not involved? When does it happen? When does it not happen? You know, really starting to to dig deep and research that current condition can really help before we even need to think about right. What are we going to do? Um. So yeah, I think I think the those principles can really help us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um. There's you've already answered the question that I would ask, but you know, as an opportunity to try to practice some of this. If if I were to ask Gemma, why avoid the word why? I don't know if that would make you defensive about (laughs) asking why, but you know, um, there, there, I think are other ways of asking it like, um, but, or, or even a prompt, like it's not technically a question, but like, well, tell me about some of the ways different people might react to a why question. Like maybe that language is a little less accusatorial. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're depersonalizing it by, you know, Tell me some ways that other people might feel. Um, yeah, you're you're taking it away from that person and you're making it to more, you know, humans in general. Um, I think that's a really good way to to reduce some of that defensiveness because you're not answering on behalf of yourself. You're then answering on behalf of, you know, imaginary people or all of humanity. Mm-hmm. Definitely. 
Yeah. And when you, when you talk about depersonalizing things, I mean, I think the why question really triggers defensiveness. And I think, again, it's understandably so. Um, why did you? Yeah. I think why the why you? and the you, right? So you can think of like trying to do root cause analysis. I think of, you know, one of the stories uh, in, in my book about a wrong site surgery and probably not a helpful question to ask the uh, resident surgeon, why did you cut into the wrong side of the patient? Right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really, that that's, to me, that's, that's, that's an accusation. I mean, yes. I mean, it's a fact that the resident in the, in this story, and this happens far too often cut into the wrong side of the patient. But when we anchored around, why did you, it seemed like we're no longer talking yeah. about systems. Like what allowed that to happen? Yeah. You know, or, or I think even asking, well, I'll see, I almost, I almost with the why, what, what could be done to prevent that from happening again? Happening again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, we should focus on this, the process, not the person, you know, um, and yeah, by, by switching the questions to, to sort of force us to focus on the process rather than the people, um, that can really help that but yeah and it to stop that level of because it's human nature you know if if someone's asked why did you do that you know that's our human nature is to get defensive so yeah trying to depersonalize it mm-hmm. go heavy on the process and and yeah. light on the person mm-hmm. and 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 i think some of this defensiveness happens i, I one thing i challenge in and um lean practice if you will is um, what a lot of people call a bowling chart of a list of 12 months, 12 numbers, instead of a chart, as I'm trying to draw with my finger here, instead of a line chart, it's a list of numbers that may or may not be color-coded in some way. And if I challenge that, and sometimes people say, well, but that that's what my sensei taught me to do last year. So it's not even a matter of uh, quote unquote, we've always done it that way. Yeah. But that's how I was taught. And, and and I can see where now with the wise situation. I I've I've been taught others, but I've been taught why questions are good. We should ask why five times or whatever that number ends up being. But you know, I, I think there's a story going back to Toyota history as it's told. I'm I'm, I'm sure you've heard it, Gemma, and a lot of our listeners have of. Toyota's evolution and some language around mistake proofing of supposedly they they were they were referring to it as bake yoke or yeah and and which means more or less foolproofing or idiot proofing and the story goes that somebody in the factory got upset and said well I'm not a fool look well, so there's some emotion there's some feelings yeah exactly and that Toyota adjusted to calling it poke yoke or poke yoke we debate the pronunciation of that I guess too but um but to focus on mistake or error, but even those words can be really loaded if people feel like they're being blamed. Yeah. Well, it sounds like judgment. It sounds like blame. Um, it could, I mean, it depends on the culture and the context, I would guess. But um, yeah, it can it can be. Mistake has a, you know, that's that's got an emotional feeling to the word mistake, I believe. And yeah, I I believe we should focus on where the process is falling down. You know what? What in the process allowed this mis- this mistake? You know this this um, this incident, this thing to happen, and try and take it away from the people. It's funny. I 
most of my work is talking about how it's all about the people but then a lot of the focus is like you know we need to make it all about the process yeah yeah and and i, th- I mean we we can do both i don't think it has to be we need to do both. We, instead we of being hard on people we can engage them and understand them and um, support them support them ask about them um but yeah two other words while we're playing the game of naming words that can trigger an emotional response uh problem yeah oh i mean i think you know it's second nature in toyota it's like they throw that word around like problem has the same emotional weight as a post-it note like it's a yeah. it's a thing it exists it's a thing. but boy some workplaces people will plead beg and plead can we use any word other than problem to describe a problem like if that's what it takes that's a baby step that's necessary okay or the word defect yeah right yeah yeah and again I think it comes down to culture if you know if the culture has been about um you know, we are allowed encouraged we're safe if we if we admit there's been a problem then their reaction to the word is probably going to be better than if, you know, well, we had a problem and, you know, the order went down, the customer left, we lost loads of money. You know, if you're, if you've been, you know, if if there's been big issues with problems in the past, if people have been disciplined because of problems or because of defects, you know, then people can link, oh, problems happen, you know, we get in trouble or problems happen, there is trouble. And then immediately people will close up and they won't share, they won't talk about it, they won't try to highlight or uncover problems because history has shown them, experience has shown them that bad things happen. Right. So right. this is, and that's why a lot of things get covered up, I believe, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that happens and I saw it an awful lot in manufacturing. Yes, it People happens. Know what, yeah, they know it what's happens happening, the- they know how it happens, they just don't want to talk about it because they know bad things happen. Right. And they don't feel safe because it's probably it's been demonstrated that it's not safe. Yeah, it's not exactly. an unfounded fear. Um, and it happens too much um, in, in healthcare. And again, I'm, I'm never blaming the people who choose not to speak up because sometimes, I mean, look, it's human nature. You'll protect yourself as much as someone would want to lecture about professional obligation. And well, yeah, we have to help people feel safe. And, yeah. and I think that's the emotion. And we'll tie it back to, uh, I'm glad you brought up um, Dr. Deming, who said, what? Eliminate fear. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there's that foundation for your education and career and and, and mine as well. So, uh, you know, Gemma, as, as, as we wrap up here, I mean, kind of one maybe general point and then the specific question about where to find some of this training it, it seems like it might be possible to incorporate some of this discussion around, let's say, mental health or um, people's feelings into discussions around safety and a priority on not just physical safety. Yeah. But yeah, a broader I, view of safety. I think so. Um, I guess the, you know, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Could be. Um, the only the, I guess my hesitation is that, um, you know, and I, I don't know how to say it. This is this. I'm not going to say this very well, I don't think. But, you know, that in manufacturing, certainly there's often a an attitude towards health and safety that isn't necessarily positive. You know, it's a bit of a roll of the eyes or, oh, gosh, yes, now we have to, you know, there's because the experience is having lots of things layered on them that makes their life harder. 
Now, yes, it makes their life better and it, yes, it reduces accidents. And we all know how important that is. But sometimes there is an immediate reaction to the, the, the concept of health and safety. So I guess I would be hesitant to connect. I think it is connected. Physical safety and men, you know, mental health, physical health and mental health very closely linked. Um, I, I guess I just want to be careful there that it didn't get rolled up in the, you know, in the normal health and safety kind of um, world. So as with many things, yeah, it depends on the situation and the circumstances of a workplace, of a company. Exactly. Depends on the culture, depends how, you know, I've seen companies do health and safety brilliantly, really brilliantly. They have a great attitude towards it, really progressive, modern thinking, you know, engaging. I've seen other companies do it terribly and nobody wants to talk about it. And it's seen as a burden and something that makes life hard. Um, again, the same, you know, yeah, it's I think it's all about context um, and environment. I just I feel very strongly that I believe there's an army of CI people around the world who can really help bring a level of clarity and a level of thinking to people, as well as helping them think about processes, focus on helping them think about themselves. Learn, go, you know, I want to encourage as many CI people to go and do mental health first aider training. It's not expensive. It's not long. It doesn't mean you need to be a counsellor, by the way. It doesn't mean you're fixing people. Just like a physical first aider, you know, if you're a physical first aider, you see someone with a with a cut on their arm or they've broken their arm or they've hurt themselves. You're not a surgeon. You're not going to try and put them back together. You're not a medic. You're not a, you know, you're not a doctor, but you're going to you're going to notice that there's a problem. You're going to kind of look after them and you're going to get them to help. That's exactly what a mental health first aider is doing. You know what to look out for. You know how to respond and you know where to take them or where to you know, encourage them to go to to get help. And you know what to do to get them in the best situation. So it's not about worrying about, you know, I'm, I can't be a counsellor or I can't help people. I'm not, you know, it's not about that. It's knowing what to look for. So I want as many CI people to do mental health first aid training as I can possibly get. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that thank you for that analogy. That that really makes a lot of sense. And, and see where the language is designed to draw that parallel. How maybe, you know, the final question here, how did you find or decide where to get this training? Do you have a specific recommendation for others in the UK? How might the rest of us, I mean, we can go and Google the phrase, but any any tips or guidance around like what to look for of how long a program should be or the format? What would you look for? So the way I found mine is I, I actually uh, came across somebody, a mental health first aid, a trainer at a conference. Um, he delivered a really excellent session, which was he somehow managed to make the subject of mental health first aid funny, which I found really quite intriguing. You know, he talked about some really difficult, deep subjects, but made it very funny. Um, so I, I I went and introduced myself to him and said, I want to come on your course where and luckily he was fairly local to me. Um, but I think most countries have a mental health first aid organization. Um, so you want it to be accredited training. Um, so I think Googling that for whichever country you're in would be a good idea. Uh, the training I did was two days long. And then I I've done a refresher two years later, and I'm going to do another refresher every two years going forward. Um, so it's not long training. Um, it's not, you know, it's not lengthy. It can be online as well. I know there's some virtual training 
for the same course online. Um, it is pretty hard going, I will say, you know, it's, and I found it quite hard. Certainly the parts about suicide awareness were very, very tender and very difficult, um, but well worth. And I found it useful in lots of aspects of my life as a as a coach, consultant, trainer and also parent and wife and friend. So, yeah, I think it's really powerful stuff. Um, if people go to my website, there in there is a resources page on which you can find a link to um, a mural that I've put together. Mural is a digital whiteboard, mm. and there's a, there's a whole set of resources on there for designed for CI people who want to know better, you know, how to help. That's what it's called, how to help. One of the links on there is for some free suicide awareness training. It's not it's not from me. It's it's run through the NHS in the UK. It's fantastic training. It's only twenty minutes to half an hour. Um, but it's open to anyone across the world. And that's truly brilliant. And that's free. And it's half mm. an hour. Right. Um, I'd really recommend people look at that as a first step. Um, and there's some links on there as well to mental health organizations in different countries where you can find training. Okay. Well, thank you. And, and we do have listeners um, in, in dozens of countries. Um, so I hope people will look for some local resources. I'll make sure the show notes have a link to your website, Gemma, and what you mentioned there. Um, resources in particular for people in the UK, the US, and Canada, kind of where a lot of my listeners do um, come from. But uh, important topics and important ideas for for everybody. Um, so, really, thank you for being willing to talk about these um, topics, to share your story, and and things that you've done and learned, and. Um, the spirit of helping others. So um, thank you for that. I, I was I was going to ask you as we wrap up here, um, how, how do you feel? How Now that we're wrapping up the episode here, how, how do you feel, Gemma? Um, I feel, I love the way you did that, by the way, Mark. That's very clever. Um, I feel very grateful um, that you've, you know, you've, you've had me on to talk about it, that you're open to me talking about it. This isn't an easy subject. Um, you know, I know it's not an easy thing to talk about. Um, I think it's really important. But so I'm really grateful. Um, I'm I'm yeah. And I'm I'm really pleased to be talking to more people. My mission is to talk to as many CI people as possible. So I'm incredibly grateful and pleased to have done that today. OK, well, I'm, I'm grateful you would share your feelings with me. Um, I, I was I was prepared to share how I feel now I'm, I'm going to be clever by saying I feel clever, <laughs> <laughs> you which, was not, which was not really what that was not my primary motivation <laughs> there. Um, but I, I feel hopeful that the awareness um, that, that you're um, creating through, you know, keynote talks and other efforts. And by being here today, um, one, one thing I feel is hopeful that we can, um, help others help other people. And I feel grateful. So um, this this has been this has been really nice. So I, again, we're joined today, Gemma Jones. Um, I'll put links in the show notes and um, for people to reach out and follow up um, with you on all of these topics. So again, thank you so much for doing this. You're really welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org.
If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.